Well, 50 years ago this week, the final preparations were occurring for what would become known as one of the most culturally impactful events of the last 100 years. Upwards of 500,000 people gathered together on a rural farm for a three-day concert known as Woodstock. Now, I love the music of that era, but if you know the history of this festival, it was not run well. It was the fire festival, if you're familiar with that in the current day. It was not run well in that it left miles upon miles of cars on the interstate. The people that lived in the nearby town were angry about it. It rained constantly, creating a soup of mud, LSD, and raw sewage from the drastically overwhelmed porta potties that were at a ratio of one porta potty for every 800 attendees. Porta potty waits were over an hour and a half long. Food ran out quickly. Many of the bands were electrocuted on stage as they attempted to play in the rain. And yet many, if not most, of the attendees speak of it fondly and promote it as an event worthy of its legendary status. Why would this be? In our contemporary day, you can go on Netflix and watch the, the documentary about the Fire Festival, which was similarly a badly run festival, and everybody about strangled the people that ran it. But yet somehow, this is a cultural icon. Why? Well, last week, Brett McCracken, a writer for the Gospel Coalition, hit on something important with an editorial entitled, Woodstock was a secular worship service. In it, he detailed the connection points between this music festival and a religious worship service. In fact, he said that Woodstock has bled on down to the reason why Christians make music festivals almost more a place of worship than they do liturgy on Sunday morning. Now, because I'm naturally a skeptic, it caused me to pause and do a little research to see if what he had said held weight, and boy, did it ever. You see, what I want to submit to you is that the reason it was so successful is that it may not have completely delivered as a music festival, but it completely delivered as the defining religious event for a generation. Woodstock was a massive gathering of people gathered together to worship and commit to a mutually beneficial covenant. In fact, it's very similar to the setting of what we have here in Deuteronomy 28. It was known to the people of the day as the Aquarian Exposition, a show of what a people existing within the utopian ideals of love and peace could be like. You listen to our songs this morning, and it even connects love and peace, right? What's the difference? Well, McCracken says this, once the program kicked off, the attendees took part in what was basically a three-day church service devoted not to vertical worship, but to an inward transcendence and horizontal solidarity. There was even a Eucharist of sorts, but with weed and acid instead of bread and wine. It was scheduled to be located in a larger city in upstate New York, but at the last minute, the residents of that town banned it, and it had to retreat to a tiny, excuse me, a tiny hamlet known as Bethel. If you have forgotten, Bethel means house of God in Hebrew, and it was the name of the Israelite town where Abram initially covenanted with the God of the Bible. Across the fencing of the venue, one could find graffiti marking, We are one. 
Promotion signs called it a celebration of peace, music, and love. Organizers and overseers of the festival enforced what was called the Peace Patrol to bring about an environment of reconciliation among the congregants. When food ran out, an unknown vendor provided oats and granola seemingly out of nowhere to feed the massive crowd as if manna from heaven. Song after song declared freedom from authority, from morality, and a replacement with a self-indulgent idea of being true to oneself. And if all of that were not enough to convince you of the parallels, this is a picture that was taken at the beginning of the festival. You see, the congregants were getting restless and the organizers wanted someone to calm the crowds. So they asked a yoga guru named Swami, and I'm going to butcher his name, Sachindananda, to come up on stage and give a short teaching and a prayer. He prayed that peace and love would be promoted through the art of music. He told the attendees, the congregants, that the world would be looking at them to see the manifestations of peace and love. Very similar to Moses standing before the people saying, the people will look to you to see who it is that you worship. This is a quote from his so-called prayer. The entire success of the festival is in your hands, not in the hands of a few organizers. The entire world is going to watch this. The entire world is going to know that what the American youth can do for humanity. So every one of you should be responsible for the success of this festival. He then led the congregants in what they knew as a yoga meditation chant. But in its Hindu context, it was a massive declaration that invited the Hindu God that removes bondage, the Redeemer, so to speak, to become one with the people at the festival. And he called them all to proclaim the name of the seventh incarnation of the god Vishnu, which in doing so, and this is a quote, removes the sins of the speaker and gives them the path to life. The organizers at the time may not have intended it to be anything other than a music festival, but what it morphed into was a blatant attempt to bring about peace, restoration, and reconciliation that the Bible proclaims will only come with full submission to the creator God and him alone. But there was only one problem. The congregants wanted the gifts of peace, of love, and reconciliation. But dear church, what was missing from this? What was missing from this formula? Well, they wanted the gifts, but they forgot about the giver. This is not unlike mankind's history as a whole. We were given the gifts of life and the gift of the garden in which we could dwell in perfect love, unity, peace, and harmony with the Creator God and with one another. And yet, our first mother and father chose to usurp God's position, to define good and evil on their own, much as you and I do, and worship the gifts rather than the giver. This is what the Apostle Paul defined as the progression of sin. He says this in Romans 1, 21 through 25, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools." and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This could be the subtitle to a running track of pictures of Woodstock. Now, I don't mean to beat up on Woodstock. I love the music of Woodstock. Uh, I love that, that classic rock. But what's interesting about this is the reason I know this could be a subtitle is because when I started doing research on it, I got an email from Patrick because Woodstock popped up on my Covenant Eyes account. 
right? Patrick's like, how you doing, Hans, right? Good job, Patrick, good elder, right? But the reality is, is this is depravity. It's depraved, not because it's just immoral, but because of what it was trying to gain. The counterfeit church service known as Woodstock that took place 50 years ago was an attempt to gain the gifts of God with none of the submission to the giver of those gifts. Ironically, they even have named the 50th anniversary release of the music from Woodstock, notice the top of this, Back to the Garden. In a myriad of ways, this festival and concert defined a generation because it was a whole hawk dismissal and replacement of the worship and submission to the God of the Bible, the giver of the gifts, with worship of the gifts themselves. Dear church, you can always tell a faulty gospel when the main focus is to get the gifts without worshiping and submitting to the giver. For the Woodstock adherents, it was peace, love, and music. But for many in the world today who proclaim to follow the name of Christ, it is the gifts of health, wealth, success, happiness, security, and prosperity. It is an attempt to gain the gifts with none of the submission to the giver. In our text today, I believe that this parallel an illustration of a faulty gospel is so helpful for us because if we are not careful, we will read the section of Deuteronomy and the one following it that we're going to cover next week, and we will find ourselves quickly slipping towards a worship of the gifts and not a worship of the giver himself. We will find ourselves slipping to a contractual view, a transactional view that if we do certain things for God, he'll do certain things for us. Deuteronomy 28 and 29 are commonly known as the sections of blessing and cursing. And if we are not careful, we can read them through contemporary Western American filters that cause us to believe that God has given us a formula with which we can unlock the keys to happiness, prosperity, and the good life. We can wrongly think that if we obey, God is then indebted to us to give us a good and prosperous life. But what I believe we will find is that we obey not to get something from God, but what the Word tells us is rather we obey to make His name great among the nations. So I've entitled this sermon this morning, Obedience for the Sake of His Name. Obedience for the Sake of His Name. Well, with cautious minds and hearts, let's step into our text this morning and read it beginning in Deuteronomy 28. And please hear me, I'm not telling you to go out and throw all your records from the Grateful Dead out or whatever it is you have. Maybe some of you need to do that, I don't know. But the reality is, is it wasn't about the music, it was about the worship. And we have to have cautious eyes, cautious minds and hearts so that we don't fall into the same kind of false worship. So let's take a look here at Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 1. Moses says to the people of Israel, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be de defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. 
The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to Himself as He has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. And you shall only go up and not down if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today being careful to do them. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today to the right hand or to the left to go after other gods to serve them. The first thing I want you to write down, the first main point this morning is this, the blessings and cursing of Deuteronomy are statements of covenant, not contract. The blessings and cursing of Deuteronomy are statements of covenant, not contract. Now you might say, what's the difference? Well, let's take a look here a little bit and we'll see. Back in Deuteronomy 11, I gave a sermon entitled, Discerning Blessing in a Prosperity-Driven Culture. You can go back and listen to it online. In it, I helped redefine the idea of blessing. It is not material prosperity as our hashtag blessed culture wants to define it. It is the presence of God and relationship with God. When the Bible talks about blessing, that is the primary focus. In it, I also define prosperity theology. Let me refresh your memories. This is a quote from the source of all truth, Wikipedia. <laughs> prosperity theology, sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the gospel of success or seed faith, is a religious belief among some Christians, and I would put that in very loose quotes, who hold that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them and that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. I don't know about you guys, but when I tithe, I become poorer. I don't know how this works. <laughs> Prosperity theology views that the Bible is a contract between God and humans. If humans have faith in God, he will deliver security and prosperity. Now, as I studied for this sermon, I found myself watching a lot of prosperity preachers. I even sent some to Seth, and then he got mad at me for locking him into a YouTube vortex of errancy, <laughs> as he called it. But I watched a lot of them, and I realized that there are very few of you in here today, if any, that I think are going to get sucked into full-fledged prosperity gospel. I just don't think that's going to be the case, or you wouldn't be here. Now, just for a laugh, let's check, though. Here are some popular quotes from known prosperity preachers, and let's see if you guys can see through their heresy. Let me change my scene here. Don't just accept whatever comes your way in life. You were born to win. You were born for greatness. You were created to be a champion in life. Hey, nailed it. <laughs> Joel Osteen. How about this one? This one's a little bit, little bit tougher to gauge whether it's prosperity gospel or not. If I want to believe God for a $65 million plane, you cannot stop me. You cannot stop me from dreaming. Creflo Dollar, nailed it. Good job. Now, I'm pretty positive that none of you will fall to that kind of drivel or nonsense. But what about this? 
Instructions from Jesus will always yield favorable results. How about this one? Great moves of God are usually preceded by simple acts of obedience. Did you catch that one? We are the ones that force God to act, not the other way around. Now, if we were to run these through the filter of Scripture, they're a bit harder to discern, aren't they? They sound a lot like truth, don't they? Now, here's one I found that is from a well-known church that taught on Deuteronomy 28. Holiness leads to happiness. Is that true? Is that biblical? You see, what I'm worried about for those of us that read this section of text is that we would produce cliff notes that go something like this. If I fulfill my end of the contract and am obedient, then God is required to make my life blessed. To make it even shorter, it would be, if I am holy, then I deserve happiness. This may not be as blatantly errant as the prosperity preachers I mentioned earlier, but in it, in my opinion, it is far more dangerous because of how it plays out. Time and time again, it leads to a false view that when it doesn't come to pass, leaves Christians with an errant view of what they perceive to be a lack of God's faithfulness or an idea that he does not play by the rules of the contract. I was good, and yet all this junk has happened in my life. Or maybe worse, they may slowly isolate themselves from the church thinking all those other people must have it together. They seem so happy on Sunday. I must be the only one that God doesn't love. Or maybe they're, they're a person who says, if I engage in this certain thing that some of you call sin, I'm actually happier. Doesn't that mean that God is for it? It is aligned to massive amounts of heresy. This kind of subversive false gospel slithers its way into otherwise well-meaning Orthodox churches and creates a kind of subversive prosperity gospel that alienates those wrestling with truly normal struggles such as depression, anxiety, sadness, or just how hard life can be sometimes, especially if you're pursuing holiness. Now to be sure, there is some truth that those who live in the way that God commands will find on the whole that they are happier and more content. Secular psychological and sociological studies have found that those who have belief in God are overall less anxious and stressed than those that do not. Those that forgive are generally happier than those that do not. Those that exist in long-term covenant marriage are generally happier than those that do not. You can find these metrics throughout those secular fields. But dear brothers and sisters, that is not the point of this text, nor of the Bible as a whole, nor do those statistics speak to the experience of the individual believer. All one must do is look to the men of obedience and holiness throughout Scripture. Jeremiah was the weeping prophet, not the happy prophet. Elijah suffered massive depression and suicidal ideation even after an enormous spiritual victory over the prophets of Baal and Ashtoreth. Paul talked about his anxiety for those he loved. David would probably be classified today as bipolar based upon his psalms. Jesus himself wept, and we are told by Isaiah, was one acquainted with our sorrows and griefs. And none of them, none of them, were wealthy by any stretch of the imagination. None of them. At all. Not one. Did I make myself clear? Zero. Not a zip, not one prosperity. 
So then you might ask, what is the point of this section of Scripture, Hans? It seems pretty much like a formula to me. It even says in verse 11 that the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. Hans, you are not exegeting this text. Tell me why God will make me prosperous. Well, this is is exactly what has led to the prominence of the prosperity gospel. Let me show you what I mean. Look at 28, 1 through 2. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Does this remind you of anything? If you think about it, it sounds extremely similar to the Abrahamic covenant, the original calling of Abraham in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What prosperity preaching pulls out of this is that God's statement of blessing is primarily material blessing. As Kenneth Copeland wrote in his 1974 book, The Laws of Prosperity, Since God's covenant has been established and prosperity is a provision of this covenant, you need to realize that prosperity belongs to you now. I guess that's why he has like three jets. But dear brothers and sisters, a simple cursory reading of Scripture will show that material wealth was not the focus of God's covenant. Look, for example, at Galatians 3, 7 through 9. I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but let's cement this in our minds. Galatians 3, 7 through 9 says, Know then that that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel. What's the gospel? Look back a couple of words. Justify the Gentiles by faith. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Is this talking about wealth or even a comfortable life? Not at all. What is the good news there? That we would be justified or counted as righteous even though we don't deserve it, just as Abraham was by God. The gospel is not health and wealth, but that through the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we would be brought back into relationship with the holy creator God against whom we rebelled. That's the gospel. And similarly, the good life had nothing to do with God's promise to the heirs of the Abrahamic covenant. In fact, if you look at Paul's other writings, you see this. This is Romans 8, 16 through 17. I never hear this preached by prosperity preachers. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Yes, here we go. I'm going to hear about my inheritance. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Here we go. You guys ready for it? Ready for it? Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, this is not Martin Luther beating himself with a whip and we should go home and do the same, but it's the fact that we exist in the kingdom of light amongst the kingdom of darkness and it will be hard to stay allegiant to the Lord in the midst of that kingdom. That's what the suffering is here. So what then is Deuteronomy 28 talking about? If it's not talking about a formula of obedience equaling prosperity, what is it talking about? Well, the short answer is one word, covenant. I know you guys are shocked by that in Deuteronomy. The short answer is covenant. As we've seen throughout Deuteronomy, covenant and the land go hand in hand. 
All of the Torah is about God's provision of the land for His people to dwell within and His calling of them out of idolatry, of false demonic gods to worship Him in the promised and provided land. All of the statements of blessing can be seen not as a quantifiable amount of prosperity, but as an ancient Near East idiom or cultural figure of speech that means that God will be with them and make good on his covenant promise of a fruitful land for his people. That does not mean overflowing wealth. It means provision. Now, we know this for sure from two reasons. So let's nerd out for a second. First, as Tyler talked about last week, this is how suzerain treaties in the ancient Near East work. You guys remember a suzerain treaty was a fancy name for a treaty between a conquering king, the suzerain, and their vassals, or the citizens whom they conquered. As we've been discussing throughout Deuteronomy, the book is structured, the whole book of Deuteronomy, as a suzerain treaty would be structured. The benevolent king is providing for his obedient people. And it is far more, this section in 28, is far more a general statement of relational connection than it is a line-by-line itemized transactional contract. In other words, it's saying, I, the king, promise to fulfill my role to care for you and provide for you if you promise to obey my rule. In fact, in most suzerain treaties, they sometimes didn't even spell out the blessings to this length, but relied solely on the curses to say, if you, the citizen, break your part of the covenant, then you're in trouble. But the king will never break his because he's always the benevolent king. Well, secondly... Even beyond the suzerain treaty, the form of this section of text is what is called a chiasm. We haven't talked about that in a long time. This is going to be kind of like Tyler's last week. There's going to be a lot of uh, information on the screen here, so don't try and write it all down. It'll be available online. But just to refresh your memory, a chiasm, you find these all throughout Scripture, is a literary structure. It's a literary form that's used in great, a great deal in both Hebrew and Greek literature to focus on a point. Whenever you see things repeated using different words, you don't have to have a seminary degree. You can just go back and look and find it. So whenever you're reading in a section and you you think, boy, that sounds like something a couple verses earlier, it probably is a chiasm. Whenever you see things repeated using different words, you can look a bit to see if it is one. And chiasms follow this A, B, C, B, A structure to focus on which part? Can you guess? What's the focus? C, right? It points your eyes to the center, all right? And in this section broken down, it would look like this. You'd have covenant at the start, covenant at the last. And then it would be sandwiched in with economic success, fertility of soil, fertility of humans and animals, abundant food, and then at the center, military success in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, blessed in your coming in and your going out, that's a military idiom. And so the reality is, is that this is what it was talking about. It's talking about covenant loyalty. And if you were to break it down into a more summary format, you can write this one down. This is a little bit easier to write down if you want. If you were to break it down into a more summary format, it would look like this. Covenant, prosperity, military success, sandwiched by prosperity and covenant. Now, notice that this is about covenant. It begins and ends with covenant, and the focus is victory over the enemies of God. And this is the larger grand narrative of Scripture. God is at war with the rebellious kingdom of darkness, And he has covenanted with his people to use them in the midst of the battle. This is the point of this section, not prosperity. 
Well, Hans, I never would have gotten that if you with a seminary degree hadn't figured that out. How am I supposed to read my Bible? That's why I'm here, guys. Okay? The reality is, is we're 2,000 years removed. If you were Jews of the day, you'd have no problem figuring this out. But the reality is, is that this is Scripture that's hard for us to read because what are we going to read it through? We're going to read it through Western American prosperity-driven cultural worldview. But the reality is, is that is not what this is for. This is the suzerain treaty coming to bear and saying, God's people, are you covenanted with God? The blessings and cursings of Deuteronomy are statements of covenant, not contract. And we have to really understand that because it moves on into even what we see in the Gospels. The Gospel is not God has great purposes and plans for your life, therefore follow Him and those will come to pass. That is what you hear all across the nation on Sundays at many, many churches. But brothers and sisters, I love you enough to tell you it's not about you. We don't come to church to worship you. We come to church to be commissioned, to make His name great, to obey for the sake of his name. Well, the second thing that I want you to write down today is this. The blessing and cursing of Deuteronomy are collective, not individual. I think this is one of the biggest misnomers in the midst of the Bible is that there are both, right? We know that there are both in Scripture. I did a teaching a while ago talking about both the individual and the collective, and we must read the Bible as individuals, as members within the body. But the Bible is predominantly spoken to groups of people, the Israelites, the church, a local church. But we as Americans are so individualistic that we take a section like 28, 1 through 14 that is absolutely, obviously written to the collective and we say, this must be for me. How do I interpret this for me? Well, you may notice in the breakdown uh, that I showed you a minute ago that verses 9 and 10 are actually kind of pulled out of this chiasm format. Well, let's reread what those are. In verse 9 it says, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself. What's the you there? Is it plural or individual? Plural. The Lord will establish you, plural, as a people holy to himself, as he has sworn to you, plural. If you, plural, keep the commandments of the Lord, your, plural, God, and walk in his ways, and all the peoples of the earth shall see that you, Is that plural or individual? Plural are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid or have respectful fear, right, of you. The point of obedience was not to gain the rewards. Yes, the land given to them was a result just as the renewed heavens and earth will be given to God's people at the end of days, but it was not the main point. I don't want you walking away from the teaching today thinking, oh man, I, I can't be thankful for all the gifts God's given me. No, absolutely, be thankful for those. It's about priority. If we take the gifts that God has given us and we start to worship those and we forget about the submission to the giver of those gifts, all of a sudden we find ourselves no different than those at the religious festival known as Woodstock. It's about priority. I want a child not to love me, right? I want my children not to love me because I give them gifts. I want them to love me because I'm their parent and I'm in a relationship with them. And then it's a joy to give them gifts and it's a joy for them to receive it. You see how that works? So the point of obedience was not to gain the rewards. The point was that obedience to the commandments of God was for the purpose to bring glory to God. It was for the sake of his name among the nations so that all the people of the earth shall see 
that they are called by the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob above all other gods, as it says in verse 14. And this follows in line with all that we have learned thus far. Remember what Moses heard from God back in Exodus 19? We've gone over this a few times. This is about who the offspring of Abraham, known as Israel, was to be. They were, they were to be a special people chosen for a special task to bring blessing to all the nations. He says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now, notice the chapter, Exodus 19. Was this before or after God had already chosen them, already redeemed them, and already graciously saved them? It was after. His statement there is not a contract of, as long as you follow my rules under my roof, you can stay in my house. No, it was, guys, this is the point. I saved you for this purpose. I didn't save you because you were good. You were rebellious. I saved you for this purpose. See, it is true that God has a purpose and a plan for your life, but it has nothing to do with your success. It has everything to do with making his name great. That doesn't it doesn't matter if you're a millionaire and you do that or you're a pauper and you do that. It doesn't matter if you're a school teacher or a doctor or a stay-at-home mom. All of our purposes and plans are the same. Make his name great. Amen? Those are merely avenues and mediums by which we get to do that. You see, he chose them not because of their size, not because of their moral superiority. Turn back with me to Deuteronomy 7. Take a look at Deuteronomy 7, starting in verse 6. It says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him, <clears throat> excuse me, and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. It was because of God's gracious call and covenant with Israel that they were even near relationship with him, let alone in it. It was also not due to their moral superiority over other people groups. Take a look at chapter 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Verse 7, remember, and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. Right? You guys are just as bad. It wasn't due to their moral superiority or their size. It was because God wanted to use them to show the rebellious people of the world who he was. So did God choose Israel for the purpose of prospering them? 
Was the focus so that they could have a good and prosperous life that God saved them and redeemed them? So that they could know their true worth and find their inner self and be comfortable with their personality and find the correct career for them to express themselves? No. It was for His glory and for His purposes. Turn back to Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? It was for his glory and his purposes, for the sake of his name, that obedience was asked for. Israel's express purpose was not so the nations would look to them and see a bunch of rich people living high off the land and therefore think, what a great marketing scheme. I want to follow Yahweh. They would instead see the covenant faithfulness of God through his collective people and think, wait a minute, who is their God? It's like Esther, right? Saying to this woman who follows Allah, a different God, I love you. I'm here to serve you. I want to show you righteousness and justice by assisting you in something medical. And her saying, so how do you pray? Tell me about this God you pray to, in other words. It's only in this collective notion of covenant faithfulness that prosperity can then fit in secondarily. Prosperity means that the people of God will receive the covenant faithfulness of Yahweh toward them. It in no way, shape, or form means that each and every individual Israelite would be prosperous or even happy. Do you guys know that the prince of preachers, C.H. Spurgeon, struggled with horrific depression and gout his entire life. And it didn't go away until he went to be with the Lord. The prince of preachers. I mean, talk about holy. And so to misapply this section of Scripture towards personal blessing and prosperity, health and wealth, or even just simply happiness, not joy, but happiness, I hope you now see is to massively pervert the point of the text and really all of Scripture. So where does this leave us? Okay, we know what it's not, Hans. What do we do now with this truth? Well, I think that the, what this is teaching us and what all of the narrative of Scripture is teaching us is this. Here's my last point this morning. We obey Christ not because of what he can give, but because he's our benevolent king. We obey Christ not because of what he can give, but because he is our benevolent king. And then if he gives us stuff, well, praise God, be thankful for it. That's awesome. If you are prosperous and you are doing well, that is not a sin. Praise God, use it to his glory. If you are a pauper and in poverty, then praise God. He's somehow going to use it for his glory. And one day you will reap the whole heaven and earth along with the rest of us. We obey Christ not because of what he can give, but because he is our benevolent king. In my short eight years as a parent, mixed with my time as a pastor and counselor, and hear me here, I do not by any stretch know everything. But in this short time, in these three roles, I have realized that fear will work as a parenting strategy or a leadership strategy for a little while. 
but not much further. As a parent, it will work for a little while until the kids outgrow you and they can beat you up, as my children will be doing here shortly, if you've seen them. Or maybe they can move out of the house and just leave you behind. Fear doesn't work after that. Likewise, parenting out of rewards and rewards solely will also only work for a little while until the kids figure out that they can get the same dopamine hits through other things besides what their parents can give. Guys, when toys and Legos and Play-Doh no longer suits their dopamine hits, guess where they go? We all know, just look at most church youth groups. Because the church youth groups have been taught through a program that the reason we follow Jesus is what we get from him. I've been jokingly calling our prize booth prosperity booth for about a year. And that is why we're removing it as it currently stands and replacing it with a model that no longer teaches that the reason you memorize scripture is because you get something. Because that teaches prosperity. It teaches a subversive prosperity. The reason we're changing it is because we still want them to learn their memory verse. We still want to encourage them. We still want to celebrate with them. But we want to do it in a way that's going to teach them we obey Christ not because of what he can give, but because he is our benevolent king. What I've seen work in counseling, pastoring, and in my own experience is that the best chance a parent, a pastor, or a counselor has for pointing a person, even their own child, towards obedience is to establish strong, loving, mutually beneficial relationships. Not as friends, especially in the parent-to-child situation, but as the roles of parent and child, fulfilling their roles in a mutually honoring way. And even then, obedience is not assured. Amen, parents? Those of you who are older and have watched your parents leave the house, you could have done a fantastic job at this. And maybe some of your children are not following the Lord. And that's not 100% on you. There's a point at which they take on their own responsibility. But a parent and child who know and love one another well will have the best shot at influencing one another in the direction of obedience towards Christ. It won't guarantee it, but it's the best shot. In Christendom, I often find these same two motivations occurring. I believe in Jesus because he can get me to heaven when I die. What I want to hear about on Sunday morning is how I get to heaven when I die. What am I going to get? Or I follow Jesus because I don't want to go to hell when I die. How can I stay away from hell, pastor? Tell me how I can stay away from hell. Now, certainly these things are indeed accomplished by the work of Christ. Don't get me wrong. That's definitely at the base of the gospel. There is truth in that. But my concern is more about the longevity and the external outcome of these motivations, if that's all we have. If we are motivated by the pleasure principle, that a reward is what drives our actions and our behaviors and our motivations, what happens when we find that thing that outweighs the goodness of God with immediate gratification? You see, waiting until heaven, sometimes it doesn't work for you guys, and it doesn't work for me, because that thing that's right in front of me, I know that it will hit my dopamine better. What happens when what is right in front of us, tangibly, in our hands, outranks something more eternal? And what happens when life wears on and we find ourselves beaten and bruised by the realities of living in a broken and sinful world? Are you and I so good at delayed gratification 
that looking to heaven will keep us walking in obedience all our days? Stanford did a study back in the day called the marshmallow test. You guys ever seen this? Where they bring a child into a room and they sit him down in front of a marshmallow and they say, okay, buddy, if you can wait two or three minutes while I step out of the room, when I come back, you get two marshmallows. Some of the kids were able to last and some of the kids weren't. They've actually shown over time that this study in a longitudinal progression, they have proven that that is one of the primary indicators of future success in life. In other words, if you can delay gratification. But guys, I want to ask you, how many 70-year-old, 80-year-old, 90-year-old on-fire Christians do you see anymore? You see some, and we should rejoice at those and look to them as massive models. But the reality is, is that I've watched even in my own generation at 40 years old, so many of the people that were on fire at 20 fall away. Why? Because Little League and the house and the car and the RV and the boat and the second house and the vacation to Europe. And man, that just is so much better than waiting for heaven. Oh, you know, I'm still saved because I said that prayer back at kids camp when I was eight. So I'll get heaven on the other end. But right now I'm going to focus on the good life because that's what Jesus wants for me, right? The delayed gratification doesn't work. And what we realized back in Deuteronomy chapter 11 is that we are already blessed by our relationship that has been restored with the Creator God Himself. Dallas read to us from Ephesians 1 earlier. I'll just pull just the first verse of what he read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That word every is really important because that means that there's nothing else that we are waiting for. Well, wait a minute, Hans, then I don't know if I want to follow Jesus because my life isn't all that great right now. Then you most likely believe in the prosperity gospel. And that's what you're waiting for. God, make good on what you have promised me, on that spouse you've promised me, on that life you've promised me, on that career you've promised me, on that good life that you've promised me. Do you see the past tense that Paul uses here and throughout the rest of the verses that Dallas read? We already have all the blessings. They are not something to wait for at death or when Christ returns. We already possess the blessings. We have already been blessed. Now, there is some truth to the fact that when we have Jesus ruling and reigning physically in place, it's going to be a lot better. Amen? And we look forward to that, but that starts today because he's already ruling and reigning, just not in physical form. Is that true in your life? Or are you waiting for him to rule and reign? We have the blessings because we have been made citizens of the kingdom of heaven through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross was certainly not less than our salvation. But it was also certainly more than that. When Jesus was pinned to that cross, he became the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And at the same time, he was high and lifted up as the king of God's people. And in his resurrection, he proved that he had defeated sin and death and hell and purchased us from the kingdom of darkness, made us his own. And in that moment, the kingdom of God was inaugurated on earth as it is in heaven. And those who are truly his people became his lawful citizens and adopted children. And so what we now proclaim is not just about what is to come, that is part of it for sure, but about what is already here. Is that how you evangelize? Just wait for it. It's going to be really good. So follow Jesus now. 
Or do you evangelize with the king reigns and he's calling you into his kingdom? That Jesus Christ is our benevolent king who has offered us an everlasting new covenant, a covenant that was ratified by his own body and blood given for you and for me that we might be ransomed from our sin, death, and the kingdom that ensnared us and brought us into the kingdom of light. But again, I would press you to say, and I know that this is going to probably get me in trouble, so I'm going to brace for it. The gospel is not just that you are saved. It is that he reigns as king. Amen? Amen. It is not just justification. It is certainly that, praise God. But it is more than that. It is justification leads to glorification that he already exists in ultimate glory. Amen? And we will join him in that glory. And so please hear me. I am not saying toss out justification or to belittle it or say that it's not important. It is. But every once in a while, we need the sermon to remind us that that is not all of it. That it's also about his reign. And so our job now is to go throughout Salem, Oregon, and the world proclaiming this to be true by our obedience to his law of love, mercy, justice, and grace, which does not ever mean perfection because that's impossible. But it means living in a state of repentance. And this is where we get the Great Commission. Notice it with me, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. We just had a big elders meeting this last weekend and we were reminding ourselves of what our purpose as a church is. And we focused on this and the verse I'll show you after. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice what he starts with when he proclaims the gospel, Right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That means getting them into the people of God, into the new covenant, teaching them to observe, which means to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Is this only for missionaries? No, it's for all of us. This is where Paul received the call to go throughout all the world to bring about the obedience of faith. And this is why he reiterates this in Romans 1, 1 through 5. At the beginning of Romans, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ, Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David. Who is David? What's his, the first title? What do we, what's the title we call David? King. So descended from the kingship according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power. Okay, that's talking about his reign, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Notice that there's nothing in there about me or you. You notice that? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So can we rightly say that Paul hasn't proclaimed the gospel yet because there's nothing in there about our justification? No, he's proclaimed the gospel, man. That's awesome. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have now, here we go, received grace and apostleship, period. Sweet. We get the goodies. No, for what reason? To bring about, everybody say the bold part with me, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Why were you saved? Say it again. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. What's your purpose and plan that God has ordained from the beginning of time for your life? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Amen? 
You might be a prosperity gospel follower right now if you are a little depressed. What was Paul's motivation for causing others to obey Christ as disciples? For the sake of his name. Dear brothers and sisters, we do not submit to a religion that proclaims the philosophy that we make Jesus great so that we can be greater. We do not submit to a religion that proclaims the philosophy that we make Jesus great so that we can be great ourselves. We believe in a God and benevolent King that is so powerful that when we see Him, our only appropriate response is to proclaim with a loud voice what John the Baptist proclaimed. He must increase, but I must We don't obey because it will mean prosperity now. We don't obey because it will mean heaven later as if God is getting us to sit still through a doctor's appointment called life so he can give us an ice cream treat when we're done. We obey because of the relationship he has established for us through the death and resurrection of his son. We obey because we trust that he loves us and desires good for us. We obey because he's our king. Amen? I'm a little ramped up here. You guys all right? This morning, I want to ask you, what is your motivation for obeying the commands of Christ? Are you following Christ because of what you believe it will gain you? Or do you obey because you've already gained Christ and you desire to make His name great? I love what Paul writes in Philippians 3, 7-8. through 8. But whatever gain I had, I counted as prosperity. Nope. You never ever see this preached by prosperity preachers. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of the anointed king, Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. There's prosperity, amen? The worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my, your Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. As with Paul, true obedience may lead to loss. In many parts of the world, especially with our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso right now, it may even lead to death. I wonder what the prosperity preachers think of that. But our greatest good is not prosperity, health, or wealth. It's not even that subversive, minimalistic prosperity gospel that obedience will always lead to happiness. It is not even that. It is that subversive gospel that keeps us from being able to proclaim to our brothers and sisters that struggle with same-sex attraction, being obedient for you is going to lead to unhappiness in a lot of ways. No wonder they don't want in the church. Wait a minute, following your gospel is going to lead to unhappiness for me. That doesn't sound like the gospel. Guys, sometimes obedience leads to unhappiness, but it results in a abounding joy because joy doesn't matter based upon our circumstances or our feelings. Joy exists because we know the creator God who is good, and that never goes away. So you can say obedience will lead to joy. We obey not to gain something, but to proclaim what we have already gained and to make his name great among the nations. If this is not the case in some of your lives today, then today is the day to repent at the table of communion to check your motivation and the state of your heart. I know this is convicting for me. I hope it is for you. And ask yourself if you have truly received the restored relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe if this is the fullness of the gospel that you've believed in, this prosperity view, then come back and pray with us in the back. There will be some elders in the back that would love to pray with you to repent from this view and to worship the King instead. 
At the same time, I want to say to those of you that are Mission Fellowship, those of you that have been here a long time, are members or have attended for a long time, I want to finish with this. I cannot speak to your obedience in the closed doors of your own homes. Only the Spirit can do that. But what I can speak to is that in regards to your time of giving yourselves over to your community, in regards to giving your talents in terms of volunteering, and in regards to giving of your tithe and offering, I can say, well done, good and faithful servants. We as elders, as we were looking at the numbers, we have over 100% participation by our members in small groups. We have 93% plus giving. We have over 90% of you volunteering. Is that obedience? Well done, church. I'm dumbfounded at how we got here, other than by the grace of Jesus Christ. You are being obedient. And I cannot tell you that because of that, this week is going to be unicorns and rainbows and everything's going to go really well and our church is never going to have a problem ever again. I can't tell you that. But what I can tell you is that you are making the name of Jesus Christ great among the nations 